Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. We're going to be continuing our uh, series that we're calling Game of Thrones, which is again, we're looking at, this is the fourth installment in the series, actually, it'll probably end up having seven or eight because we're going to go all the way through really kind of the end of Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, looking at the kings of Israel. And so we are now covering 2 Samuel and kind of 1 Chronicles, they run together, and we're looking at King David and his reign. And so today we're going to be actually looking at chapters 5 to 10, but what I'm going to do is just, rather than trying to read five whole chapters, uh, I'm going to just read two portions from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 9 to 12, and then 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. They're pretty good summaries, actually, of what these passages of Scripture talk about. 2 Samuel 5, 9 to 12, and 8, 14 to 15. They'll be up here on the screen. They're also in the little booklet you have in front of them. But again, follow along in your Bible because we're going to bring up some other verses as well. So hear now the words of your Lord and your King. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and it became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and it exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And then in chapter 8, at the end of uh, 5 to 8 is kind of a subunit, we read this. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. There's a quote that is oftentimes attributed to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the best I can determine is actually not something that Lincoln said, but it was often said about Lincoln. And the quote is this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. So we've studied a lot in this series about King David when he was being persecuted and he was having to flee Saul and he was in trouble. And last week we saw when finally at the end of Two decades from the time that David was told you're going to be king until he actually got to be king, what that was like for David as everything seemed to change. Well, at this point in the story, there's a real shift. Because from 2 Samuel chapter 5 forward, David is now king over all Israel. And it's really no longer a time of adversity. It's a time of David being in power. And so the question is going to be, how is he going to do? Because if, if you follow along with Samuel, you remember when Saul was chosen as the first king of Israel, he was humble. But once he began to exercise power, things went wrong quickly. And Saul got himself in deep trouble. His character was not up to the task of wielding power. So the question is, David has done fairly well under adversity. There are times he's struggled, things he's done wrong, but he's done fairly well under adversity. How will he handle the test 
of having power. That's really going to kind of be the rest of this series and actually the next part of the series as we look at the reign of David. But we'll begin today by looking at a powerful kingdom. Now notice here, the author wants to tell us in in chapters 5 to 10, the, the key theme is that David is being successful in his reign as king of Israel. He is growing in power and might. It's being recognized by everyone around him. It starts with him establishing Jerusalem as his capital. Our text picks up right after he has conquered Jerusalem. But notice verses 9 and 10. We read, David took up residence in the fortress. This is the city of Zion, the the real mountainous area right there, the, the, the height of Jerusalem. And he called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And it became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. If you read in chapter 5, you see that this entire time that Israel has been in the promised land, which is hundreds of years, probably about 400 years, they've never conquered this section of Jerusalem. Because a tribe named the Jebusites had control of it because it was the high ground. And you could get around them, but nobody could dislodge them. And in fact, they told David a bunch of blind and lame people could prevent you from getting up here because we've got the high ground, basically. But David figured out how to get up there, did it, conquered, and made Jerusalem his capital. And he, in fact, starts expanding out the fortress, and he is growing more and more powerful. So this thing, right from the beginning, when he's united uh, as the king over united Israel, which we had seen at the end of our text last week, he's, he's now over the whole nation. And the very first thing we're told is they had never been able to conquer Jerusalem, but David conquered Jerusalem. They had said blind and lame people could keep him from getting in there, but David got in there and took it over. He is powerful. Second thing that we're told immediately is that David routes the Philistine invaders. That's really the rest of chapter 5 as he's doing this. So notice, we'll look actually here at verses 21 and 25. I'll put them up on the screen. And it's kind of a summary of the battle. And we're told David defeats the Philistines and the Philistines abandon their idols there and David and his men carried them off. And then in verse 25, there's another battle. And we read, so David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to geezer so two times in chapter five we're told the philistines are in david's territory and in fact it uses the hebrew word that they spread out because it's trying to let you see this is a mighty force this is the force that saul was never able to deal with he had victory against other tribes but he could not put down the philistines and in fact as we remember the philistines ultimately killed saul so they are spread out and they are fighting David. How's it going to go? Well, David strikes them down so mightily. Notice there in verse 21 that they abandon their gods. Now, if you remember all the way back at 1 Samuel, we meet the Philistines, and they fight Israel, and Israel loses. And what does Israel abandon out on the battlefield? The Ark of the Covenant. Israel had to abandon the ark, the symbol of Yahweh on the battlefield. Well, now David has come in and there's a complete reversal of fortune. And as the Philistines had carried off the ark of Yahweh to their own towns, now David's able to carry off the idols of the Philistines. Now we're told in 1 Chronicles uh, 14, you can look up, David actually carried them off and burned them. But he's using a literary device here. He's saying, hey, you remember when the Philistines kind of first came on the scene and they defeated Israel because the judges couldn't save Israel and they 
they defeated Israel so badly, Israel abandoned the ark of Yahweh and they carried the ark off. Well, now David is here and everything is different. Saul could never do it, but David strikes them down and everything is reversed. They abandon their gods, but rather than taking them into the temple like the Philistines tried to do with the, the ark of Yahweh, David actually destroys them. And so that's what's going on here. And he keeps pushing them back. The, the verse 25, the other battle, is he's pushing them back and he's pushing them out of Israelite territory. And in fact, if you follow the story, this is the last time the Philistines really were a major problem for Israel. David strikes them down so that they are restricted to a few coastal towns. Uh, they really cease to be a threat. The third thing that the author brings up to tell us how David's growing in his power is in chapter 8, actually, as you follow through, David defeats and subjugates all of their enemies around them. It's not just the Philistines, it's everybody. If you look in verses 1 and 2, which is kind of an introduction, and it runs through the whole chapter, but it says, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Ammon from the control of the Philistines. And David also defeated the Moabites, and then it, it continues on with the thing. Chapter 8 gives an entire list of the defeated enemies. He defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the Zobahites, the Aramaeans, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Now, not important for us to remember those tribes, not important to remember exactly where they are. What's important is it's giving us the picture that for the first time, Israel's now on top. David is powerful. He is growing. He is subjugating them. And so the summary of this section is David's successful everywhere. He's got the Midas touch. Everything David is touching turns to gold. In 2 Samuel 8, where it's listing all of the nations that he's subjugating, it's broken down into a couple of sections. And both section ends with the summary where it says the same thing. In verses 6 and 14, Twice we're given the same identical phrase. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so it lists a bunch of nations. The Lord gave vic David victory wherever he went. It lists some more nations and stories. And summary is the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It's emphasizing this is the point. Yahweh made David victorious. He delivers him from every enemy. So there is a complete reversal of what David had experienced ever since Saul had begun to persecute him. The fleeing fugitive is now the ruling monarch, and he is a powerful king, and he's not fleeing from anybody. So David is ensconced firmly as the king of Israel. But the author also wants us to understand why is David successful? Is it that David's doing better because he was smarter than Saul or bigger than Saul or stronger than Saul or, or a more charismatic leader than Saul? That's not what the author of Scripture tells us. What the Holy Spirit inspires us to understand is actually three reasons why David has success. Number one is it's not really David who has success. It's God who brings success. It's God who brings victory. Notice again those two verses in 2 Samuel 8, but also in 2 Samuel 5, 10, we're told the same thing. In chapter 5 we read, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Notice that little word, because. Here's why David was powerful, because God was with him. 
chapter 8, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Two times we're told that. So like these bookends here, David is being shown to be victorious because the Lord God was with him. What's interesting is that phrase in 2 Samuel 5 there, Lord God Almighty, is a little bit, it's an interesting phrase. The actual Hebrew phrase is, in the Old English translations, they called it the Lord God Sabaoth. We're going to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God later, and it's going to say, you know, Lord Sabaoth, his name, and you wonder, well, what is Lord Sabaoth? It's actually, that's the Hebrew word, and it means the Lord God of armies is what it really is. The word Almighty there is actually of armies, or some old translations say of hosts, the Lord God of hosts. It's saying, look, David was there. David was fighting, but it was really Yahweh marched out as the general. And when Yahweh marches out as the general, Yahweh wins. That's the way it works. He's the Lord God of armies. He's in charge. And so Yahweh gives David the victories. So the writer wants us to understand David was victorious, not because of his own gifts, not because of his own wisdom or strength, but because of God's work in his behalf. And this is important for you and I to understand. Any victories that the people of God would ever win are due to God's wisdom and strength, not our own. But see, this is the test. Abraham Lincoln did well in trouble, and he actually did well when, when he was elected president and everything else. He remained humble. It's hard. And the history of the church is replete with us doing well and leaning on the arm of God when things aren't going well. And then when they start to go well, we like to kind of toot our own horn and advertise what we've done and look how wise we are and look what we accomplished. And the second you do that, you're in trouble. You're in deep trouble. The author here is saying, look, David's victorious everywhere. We've never seen anything like this and there won't be the like of it again in the history of Israel. But he's successful because God is making him successful reason number two god blessed david for the sake of his people not for david's sake but for someone else's sake second samuel 5 12 we read and david knew that the lord had established him as king over israel and had exalted his kingdom for circle it highlight it underline it for here's why for the sake of his people, Israel. God blessed David for God's purposes, not David's purposes. Okay? God blessed him for his own reasons. David was blessed and established as the king of Israel for the sake of others. So let's all say, you are blessed to be a blessing. It's always the principle. That's not just some little phrase we came up here with Bay Ridge. David is being blessed to be a channel of blessing to the people of God. And as long as he's going to be that channel, God will continue to bless him. The second David wants to turn it in on himself, Yahweh can shut the spigot off. Okay, that's it. He wants to be. I'm going to, Kelby. I'm going to preach it. So... <laughs> That's right. He's being blessed for the sake of others. God never blesses us. Please hear. He never blesses us so that we can consume it on ourselves. God blesses you and me so that we might be a channel of blessing to others. And friends, uh, as John Piper quipped years ago, the channel, the pipe doesn't need to be gold-plated. It just needs to get the water where it's going. 
That's all it needs to do. But there is huge temptation. It is easy to say, I'm trusting God. And hey, Do you know that they, they've checked and done all kinds of surveys? Very often, people who are poor are more generous than those who are actually wealthy. Those who are in a better place in life, sometimes we get turned in on ourselves. It is a huge temptation. As we pray for our missionaries, one of the things to pray for, one of the things missionaries have struggled with is everywhere the gospel goes in and really takes root, people materially prosper. And the more they prosper, the less fervent they become in their faith. And the less they pour the blessings out to others and the more they... They start keeping themselves. It's a problem that missionaries have because they're like, we want the gospel to take root. We want it to have this effect. We want to see it actually take people out of extreme poverty and bring them blessing. But we've got the struggle because the more that happens, the less fervent they are about spreading the gospel. See, God blesses David so he can be a blessing to others. Always the principle. We'll not sell a million books in modern America, but it's gospel truth gospel truth third reason he blessed david was he blessed him as david continued to seek god and his will we're told twice in second samuel 5 in verses 19 and 23 we're we're given this phrase in verse 19 we're told so david inquired of the lord should i go and attack the philistines will you hand them over and yahweh says go i'm going to hand them over another battle comes up Verse 23, so David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. When I was a young Marine, I wished God would have given me specific directions like that because I was not that good in like the attack mode, right? It had been really nice if God said, here's how you do the battle. Well, that's what he's doing with David. But notice the key phrase here is David inquired of the Lord. Now, here's something interesting. That phrase occurs exactly three times in all of 2 Samuel. All of 2 Samuel. Three times in the whole book. Two of them are right here as David is dealing with the Philistine invader because he wants to know. The Philistines have been a problem, man. We've been dealing with these guys through all of 1 Samuel. It ended up being the death of Saul. It's never worked. How's this going to get resolved? It gets resolved when David inquires of the Lord, when David seeks God for guidance. So David's successful because he doesn't rely on his own experience or wisdom or strength, but rather on God's wisdom and might. And please hear, has David fought in battles before? Has David beaten the Philistines before? Yes. But the point for David is it doesn't matter how much experience I've got. I need Yahweh to show me what to do. It doesn't matter how good I tend to be at this. My trust is not in myself, but in God. You can think of the psalm, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God because he's the one that brings victories. So for us as the people of God, even when we feel that we're in an area where we are strong, and up to the task, we must always have a posture of seeking God and submitting to His wisdom and His will. Because there is no area where you and I are actually up to the task, friends. There's just not. Because our battle's not against Philistines. Our battle's against the foe, Satan. And I will guarantee you, he's been around for thousands of years dealing with human beings He's a whole lot smarter than you and I are, a whole lot more experienced than you and I are, and way more powerful than you and I are. 
but he is not as wise he is not as experienced and he is not as powerful as the lord jesus christ and so if we find ourselves in the posture before god that we are seeking him then we find ourselves being a channel of blessing to other people and at the end of it we recognize hey the victory was god's not mine so this is what's going on in this text now what this means is that the scripture here in this passage wants to say that david is being the king of justice and righteousness and this is a very very important phrase and thing for us to understand we're told at second samuel 8 15 this is right at the end of chapter 8 david reigned over all israel doing what was just and right for all his people this is a summary of 2 Samuel 5 to 8. It's saying if you want to know what, how to characterize David's reign at this point, he's doing what is just and right. And you know what? Boy, you can't ask for anything better. If we could have congressional leaders and Supreme Court justices and, and a president that we could say they are doing what is just and right for other people. We, we'd be in a time that we've never been in before as a people. And... <laughs> And we would be blessed. David's executing justice and righteousness for the people, for others. And that's why David is the standard by which all later kings are judged throughout Chronicles. When, when you read in Chronicles, the standard always is, oh, this king was bad. He did not do what was right like David did. And even when the king is really good, they're like, this guy was awesome. He's not as good as David, but he was good. David is the standard because he sets up a kingdom that is working justice and righteousness. But let me be quick to say this. That does not mean David is perfect. He is not, even at his best. And some of David's sins are already evident here in chapters 5 through 10. These are the chapters where the writer is trying to say, let me explain why David was great. But even in the midst of it, there are things, if you read it, where you go, what's that about? Well, what it's about is David's not perfect. So, for example, we read David started collecting wives and concubines. And this isn't just a question. You can read it in 2 Samuel 5, 13, that it says, After David left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now, this isn't just a matter of somebody saying, you know, gathering a whole bunch of wives together is not a good idea. This is probably going to lead to trouble. Probably is going to lead to trouble. But it's not just a question of whether we think it's a good idea or not. God had explicitly forbidden kings from doing this. And David knew that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the very first time God said, eventually you're going to have a king, and you're going to want a king to be like the nations around you. And here's the problem. He's going to want to be like the kings around him. And so God said this in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 17, He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So God told them, when you have a leader, those leaders are not to accumulate the trappings of wealth and power and exalt themselves above others. They're not to start living like they're not like everybody else. Okay? But do leaders like living like everybody else? No, I like all the trappings of power. But let me tell you, friends, whenever a leader begins to accumulate wealth, power, and privilege, 
and they start acting like the rules don't apply to them, sin is knocking at the door. I don't care who you are, it is trouble. And this sin of David's is going to come home to roost. Through his family, there's going to be fights and struggles and bloodshed, and Solomon's going to pick up all the wrong lessons, and the kingdom's going to get rent in half because David's not listening to what God said. And this is especially important in the church. A church leader who accumulates wealth, power, and privilege is following the ways of the world rather than the will of God. Please hear me on this. You can get on the internet right now and you can see all kinds of guys who you know, are trying to explain why they need a $40 million jet to do their job. No, you don't. If you're the head of a Fortune 500 company, get whatever jet you want. If you are a minister of the gospel, your actions speak to the gospel and the kingdom. And we are not to live the ways of the world. There's a simple fact. When I took this job, I limited my ability to make wealth. Fact. Because it's not righteous for me to do it. It's fine for other folks to do it, but you are part of the kingdom of God. And we are not to act like the world. Just simply is the way it is. But that is not the way we're oftentimes acting in the church now. We want to try and make it. And, and we encourage people. And it's not just guys buying jets. I, I read this summer that there was a leader who there was an accusation towards them regarding whether they'd been caught up in sexual sin. But a lot of the stuff was they were coming in and preaching in a meeting and then getting on a jet and getting flown to their summer house. And then they would be flown back to preach the meeting the next summer. And I said, you know what? They're already in trouble. I don't know what else is going on. But just by the fact they're doing that, you're not some kind of king. You're not some kind of international diplomat. You're a shepherd of the people of God. And everybody in your congregation is not jet-setting around and doing that. The second you do that, you're in trouble. And then I'm not surprised to find out, and now we got all this stuff going on. Because you cannot live that way. So I'm a little bit on a soapbox right now, but I'm passionate. Do not, if God ever calls you somewhere else, do not submit to a leadership where they act like they're different than you are. They are not. I have to follow the same rules you have to follow. What's not wise for you is not wise for me. It would be foolishness for me to engage in it. And no, the guy up front with the microphone around his face is not holier than you are either and not less susceptible to sin than you are. It's just if he's got any common sense, he keeps walls built really high to protect himself. And David's not doing that. And we all know, what's the one big sin everybody knows about David? It's, it's, it's women, right? Well, he's starting to gather them around. And guess what? We're going to get after chapter 10 and we hit 2 Samuel 11. And all of a sudden, the seed that's been planted, the tree's been rotten from the inside. So, moving on, we could also say, if you look at 2 Samuel 8, there's some things where David... If you read it, quite honestly, it's like, that sounds like a war crime. David's not showing mercy to enemies that he's conquered. And friends, it's not right. There's a, I don't have to justify it and say, well, it was really okay for David to take POWs and then kill two-thirds of them. No, it really was not right for David to do that. 
And that was a sign David's not trusting Yahweh. He's saying, I've got to provide for myself. And when he's doing that, he's in trouble. Now, let me go back and say, in this section, the main point is that David's doing well. He's walking in personal righteousness, even showing mercy. In 2 Samuel 9, he tracks down descendants of Saul and says, I want to find someone to show mercy to. On the whole, David is doing well in this stage. But even here, what we're learning is what we really need is the king of justice and righteousness, and it's not David. It's David's son, but it's not David. At his best, David is ruling like God. Remember that phrase that David established justice and righteousness for his people. Solomon wrote a psalm, Psalm 72, that very often scholars call messianic it's a little unusual phrase because the entire bible is messianic everything is either showing us what jesus is like or showing us why we need jesus because we're not like him but psalm 72 is one where it's recognized and he begins the psalm this way endow the king with your justice O god and the royal son with your righteousness notice the same two words He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. This is what the king is supposed to do. If the king is going to be a good king, God, he needs you to give him your justice and righteousness because he's never going to establish it otherwise. Would you do this? The king is supposed to rule in the place of God by his actions pointing to God. And so this is the picture of the ideal king of Israel. And it's the same terms. Solomon isn't just randomly doing this. He's giving the same terms that people said, this is what David's rule was like. It was one of justice and righteousness. That's what it's supposed to be. And at his best, David did that. But is David just and righteous towards Uriah the Hittite? No, he's not. And he's not just and right towards all these women that he's gathering as wives and concubines. He's not just and right in all his days. So even at his best, David falls short. And then let's not even get into his sons. Are they establishing kingdoms of justice and righteousness? No, in fact, we're told by some of them, Manasseh, who's going to come hundreds of years later, we're, we're told that Jerusalem, just the streets flowed with blood because there was injustice. There was unrighteousness among these kings. And the prophets are constantly crying out for it. And so what this leads to is the messianic hope. And so when we come down about 300 years later, Isaiah the prophet is one that's going to speak. We could look at many prophets, but Isaiah uses these words that we've all heard before, but I want you to notice them now that we're talking about David's reign of justice and righteousness. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? Justice and righteousness. Same words that were used to summarize David's throne. Because see, That's what David was supposed to do. And that's what David was doing when he was doing well. But then David didn't do so well. And since David, it's been just a quick descent into anything but justice and righteousness. 
but there's going to be one who's going to come. There is an anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means. He's going to come, and he's going to sit on David's throne. And once and for all, he's going to establish perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And here's the best part. Notice that last phrase, that uh, from that time on and for how long? Forever. Because here's the problem. Even if you've got a king who on the whole does well, like David, what happens to all of them? They die. And have you ever noticed that very often when there's a great man, the son follows up behind him, and is, is he up to snuff? For dad was a great king, and what's the son like? I mean, some of the worst kings of Israel came from some of the best kings of Israel. And then oddly enough, some of the best kings came from <laughs> some of the worst kings as their dad. It just, it just doesn't always work that way. You can look in the history of the church, and it's like this guy was a great theologian, and his son was like, you know, dabbling in heresy or something. That's just oftentimes the way it works. So there's always this struggle. But here, what we are actually told is, no, see, you don't have to worry about it, because this Messiah is not only going to be the son of David, he's going to be David's God as well he's going to be the everlasting father the prince of peace the the mighty god is who this one is going to be which is why in psalm 110's language the lord said to my lord that's what jesus brings up in the new testament well how's he david's son if he's also his lord well because this one is according to his human descent the son of david but he is the son of god He is eternal. He is going to come and he is going to rule. And so what we see in this section is that David is a pointer to Jesus Christ, both in his ability to generally establish justice and righteousness, but even in his failures. Because even in his failures, he's saying, you need the true king of justice and righteousness. That's what is needed. And that's why, friends, we never set our sights on any human leader do not put your hope in them because they will fail only christ will never fail so let's be very clear should your hope be in the president or your congressman should it be should your hope be in this guy no don't do that please don't do that to me And don't do it to yourself. I will fail you. Not because I want to, but because I'm sinful. I am frail. I am fallen. But there is a king of justice and righteousness that is worthy of all of your hope. And he will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will meet everything you need and beyond so that you can't even ask or think or imagine what he has in store for you that's the king of justice and righteousness that you and i need now how do we apply this text well we're we're two words here and then we're going to actually sing a mighty fortress is our god together to establish that that's where our hope lies well let me begin by saying how not to apply this text Okay, because there's a lot of misapplication of this text. Any kind of modern holy war, including modern holy culture war, is how not to apply this text. Christians have used texts like this through the centuries 
to do things like the Crusades, to march off and do it. Despite the fact that the Apostle Paul assures us by the Spirit of God, our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. So, look around the room. No one in here is your struggle. Click on your news feed this afternoon. No one in that news feed is your struggle. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood, nor is mine. We do not engage in that kind of warfare. But what that means is, Christians have to recognize as well, this is not a call for Christian political power. David ruled in a theocracy. Nobody else has ever been in a theocracy. There will never again be a theocracy. God's not interested in setting up a theocracy. God has a theocracy. It's called the church. Every other kingdom has failed. Every other kingdom is flawed. So we as Christians can and should take part in the political process. We're in the middle of political season, right? You've all noticed that when you get your mail, right? Like, I mean, entire forests are being cut down and showing up in my mailbox every day that I apparently need to know all of this stuff about these people. We should take part in that process. We should pray for our leaders. We should let our voice be heard. But please hear me. Politics cannot bring about the kingdom of God and it cannot put down the kingdom of darkness. It simply can't. Wrong tool. Cannot do that. So you can't take this text and say, that's what I'm trying to elect King David. You're not electing King David. King David is now King Jesus. He's not up for election or to be put down. We're just getting other people that are dealing with our mundane issues and lives. We cannot do that. So friends, we can no more establish God's rule by political power than popes could establish the kingdom of God by the Crusades. We cannot do it. Both are a total misapplication of the biblical text. And there are Christians, political left and political right, thinking if we could just get this person elected. You know what will happen if you get them elected? You'll get them elected. That's what will happen. And they will disappoint you. Guaranteed. And Jesus will neither be more firmly on his throne nor less firmly on his throne. He will not accede one ounce of power. Okay, so we've got, we've got to circumscribe that. So that's how not to apply this biblical text. Now, how can we apply it? Here's the key question. Am I trusting in God or trusting in myself? Why is David victorious? Who's he trusting in? Yahweh. See, and you know why David starts getting wives? It really isn't even about lust. It's political alliances. That guy's powerful. If I married his sister or daughter, then I'm more secure. Really, David? Because I thought Yahweh made you secure. And he doesn't need you making political alliances that way. And David starts accumulating wealth. And and they start, later on, you read, you know, where David takes a census. Yahweh also told him in Deuteronomy, you can't be getting all these standing armies and going down and getting horses out of Egypt. That stuff's trouble because of where your trust is. It's a sign you're putting your trust in your army, in your wealth, in your political alliances, rather than in me. So, when conflict arises, where do I find my strength and resources? In God 
or in myself? When conflict arises, do I turn to the Word of God and prayer? Or do I look to something else? Because that'll tell me where my trust is. Do I trust God to work all things to my good? We like to quote Romans 8.28 until we really need to quote it. Right? I quote it when everything's going the way I like it. See, God's working everything to my good. But see, that verse is based on what Joseph said about years sitting in a dungeon. And when was God working everything to Joseph's good? The whole time. God didn't suddenly wake up and say, holy cow, I've missed the fact that you've been sitting around in a dungeon for years. God works all things to our good. Do we trust that? Or am I conniving to work everything to get to my own advantage? Because that's what David's doing when he's already starting to, I'm getting the wives, I'm getting stuff, I'm working my way around. It's just a seed, but seeds have a nasty habit of growing. Another way to look at this question, do I view myself as the channel or the terminus of God's blessings? And that may seem like a completely different question, but it's not. If I know that Yahweh is my source of blessing, then what am I free to do with it? Just keep passing it on. Because I know he's he's an inexhaustible supply. But if suddenly I start that nasty thought that maybe it's me got this, I might not be up to the task tomorrow, so what might I ought to do? Let's stop that channel up, let it become the Dead Sea, and what happens? Everything dies. So, am I a channel of God's blessing or the terminus? God blessed David with victories for the sake of others. And as long as David remembers that, he does well. But there's these sad scenes that come up later in David's life where David can take personal punishment or other people can suffer, and David gets weak need and lets other people suffer. The shepherd says, let the sheep suffer. I'm kind of afraid of that wolf out there. Which way do we go? Which way am I trusting? Do I long for God to bless me, to consume it on myself, or to say, God bless me so I can be a source of blessing for others? Which way are we individually, as a family, as a congregation? Which way do we live? God delights to bless those who trust him and seek to be a channel of his blessing to others. So, if you and I are saying, I got my eyes firmly on the king of justice and righteousness, and he will do just, and he will do rightly, and therefore, I'm going to seek him, and when he blesses me, I'm going to pass it on to others, because I realize he's the source of true success. Not, not me, not how the world defines it, not what I would do. Yahweh is the source of my success. If we do that, we walk under the unending blessing of God. Whatever else comes, God works all things to our benefit. That's the lesson. That's what a powerful kingdom really, really looks like. It's a kingdom under the blessing of Yahweh that is spreading it and passing it as far as the east is from the west, everywhere it goes. Far as the curse was found, we are spreading blessing. So what we're going to do at this point, let's stand up together. The team's going to come out, and they're going to lead us in a mighty fortress is our God. This was Martin Luther's kind of
battle hymn, when it looked like everything was falling apart, actually when he wrote this, Vienna was under siege, and it looked like it was going to fall, and it looked like Christian Europe was in deep trouble, and Luther's confidence was that God, the God of armies, was the one that was going to be his fortress. We will sing this together, and then we will close with a benediction and blessing. Lord, we do worship you because you are a mighty fortress. Lord, no power on earth can establish your throne and no power on earth can pull it down. Lord, we know because of Jesus we are under your favor. And so we are free to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Because, Lord, you are faithful. Lord, you will watch over. Father, those words were true when Luther wrote them 500 years ago. Lord, those words were true when they were penned by the psalmist a couple thousand years before that. Lord, you are a faithful God. You are a mighty fortress. So, Lord, we ask that you would send us forth this week, Father, that we could see peace and justice and righteousness, Lord, that it would be showered on us, that we could be a channel of blessing to others. Father, we are grateful that you have so blessed us and our King of justice and righteousness. Lord, send us forth blessed to be a blessing. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you now, receive the blessing of God. This is from Psalm 20. Receive God's blessing and then go spread it. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices for his kingdom and bless you. May he give you the desire of your hearts and make your plan succeed for his glory and for the good of others. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.